It's never going to come easy. Verses 11 through 17. Okay. And so let's kind of, kind of recap what we've been doing or, or thinking about or talking about throughout um, the Gospel of Luke so far. Up until this point, Jesus' miracles um, that we have seen have pretty much fallen into, into two categories. Okay. They have either been healing miracles or, or exorcism miracles, right? And so in chapters, remember chapters one, two, and three were mainly about Jesus as, as an infant and, and the story before Jesus was, was born. Um, but in chapters four, five, and six, we've been seeing Jesus, for one, cast demons out from a number of people. Um, a few specific references and then some other general references to that kind of miraculous ministry that Jesus had in, in, um, these early years of his ministry. And then also we've seen a number of specific situations where Jesus has healed somebody of an illness, right? Um, Simon's mother-in-law was healed, uh, the leper, the paralytic, uh, the man with the withered hand. Last week we saw the centurion's servant healed. Um, maybe the only exception to any of those so far has been the miraculous catch, right? And so we saw one miracle that you could maybe define as a, as a nature miracle, right? That Jesus was doing something that, that the, changed the forces of nature out there, right? Um, but here in this passage, for the first time, uh, we see Jesus raise somebody from the dead, okay? Uh, and that is a categorically sort of different kind of, of miracle. Um, even though you could kind of say in a way it's like a healing miracle, but it's obviously more than a healing miracle, okay? Because we're talking about somebody who has already died, who has already passed um, from sickness into death, okay? And, and here's what I want you to kind of first think of is the fact that that is incredibly rare in the scriptures, okay? The, the bringing somebody back to life is something that is incredibly rare in the scriptures. I think we sometimes kind of have these ideas, so it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, well, Jesus brings people back from the dead. That's just like, that's part of the story of the Bible. There are these people coming back from the dead is a common thing in the scripture. But the reality is, is it's not, okay? And when we really start thinking and looking over the scriptures, we recognize how rare that is, all right? So let's do a little Bible quiz real quick. You ready? Okay, get your brains working. Um, how many people are raised from the dead in the Bible? How many people total are raised from the dead in the Bible, okay? Just sort of think in your head for a second. I'll give you a second to kind of think of it. Um, we won't count Jesus. We'll say that. We won't count Jesus. Obviously, Jesus is the main one, right? That should be the easy one. If you forgot that one, then uh, we probably need to have a conversation afterwards. But um, how many people were raised from the dead throughout the entire scriptures? Got a five, two, three. Three, six. Okay. Nobody got it. <laughs> the answer is eight. All right. You have three people in the Old Testament, three people that Jesus raises from the dead, and two people that are raised from the dead during the time of the apostles. Okay. And so think back through me, and let's think about the timeline here, okay? So here's the first thing. So let's just go back to Abraham. Let's start at Abraham. Even though, obviously, we could go back in history further than that, right? We could go back to creation. We could go back to, 
the flood or Noah's time or something like that. But let's just start at Abraham because it's it's at Abraham's time that we really start kind of firming up our history and we 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 feel a little more certain about our history. From Abraham to the time of Elijah, the prophet, is about 1,200 years, 1,200 years. In that span of God's working in the world, zero resurrections. Nobody is raised from the dead for 1,200 years in the history of God's people, okay? Until we get to the time of Elijah. And in the time of Elijah and his successor, Elisha, which is a relatively short amount of time. I didn't take time to look, but let's say each one's lifetime in ministry is 30 or 40 years. So we're talking, you know, under 100 years, 75 years, something like that. Within their two ministries, three people are raised from the dead, okay? Uh, Elijah raises the son of the widow at Zarephath. Elisha raises from the dead the Shunammite woman's son. And then this was sort of a trick one. If you didn't get this one, it's okay. There's a man who is who dies, and because a Moabite raiding party is coming into the country, uh, the, the people who are burying the man say, we got to get out of here because the Moabites are coming, and they take the man and throw him into Elisha's grave. And his body lands on the bones or the body of Elisha in the grave, and just from coming in contact with Elisha's dead body, the man is raised back to life. And so that was sort of a trick one because you can sort of say nobody raised him from the dead. He just came back from the dead, but whatever. Okay. Okay. Then after the ministries of Elijah and Elijah, we go for another 800 years with no resurrections. Okay. No one is raised from the dead for another 800 years, all the way until the time of Jesus. And so in Jesus' ministry, there are three people who are raised from the dead. First, there is the story that we have here, the widow of Nain's son. Then we have Jairus' daughter. That's the Talitha Kumai passage. And then we have the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is probably the one that everybody got, right? Um, and then, just as Elijah had a successor who raised from someone from the dead, in, in a sense, Jesus has successors that raised people from the dead too. And so the apostle Peter um, raises Tabitha from the dead. Uh, we don't know the, the circumstances that surrounded Tabitha. The person whose name is also Dorcas, which is the best biblical name ever. If any of you people who are having children have a daughter, Dorcas is the name, okay? Um, raises Dorcas to life. And then also we have Paul, who raises a young man named Eutychus. And you remember the story of Eutychus, Paul is preaching and he's going a little long and he's preached into the night and Eutychus is sitting in a windowsill listening and falls asleep during Paul's preaching and falls out the window three stories to the ground and to his death. But Paul goes out and, and he is raised back to life. Okay. That's it. Okay. That's, that's all of it. Okay. Eight people, three in the Old Testament within a very short amount of time and five in the New Testament within a, a again, a pretty short period of time. Um, and that's, and that's the whole of it. Okay. And so again, man, I think that sometimes we just sort of think, oh yeah, people are getting raised from the dead all the time in the Bible. And it, and it just isn't the case. And in fact, there are huge amounts of time where God is not working in that unique way. 
there are certain eras where God is, is, is sort of concentrating his action, right? Um, and I think the case is, is that when he is doing that, when he is acting in those exceptional kind of ways, it should, it should be something that, that draws our emphasis to it, right? There's obviously a reason why Jesus was able to raise people from the dead and, and, and did that. Um, and it draws our attention to certain things, okay? And so that's just sort of int- step us into the conversation. Let's look look at a couple other things in this text. So starting in verse 11, the one thing that you you maybe noticed or you might not have noticed if you didn't know about those Old Testament stories, like if those are not stories you're familiar with, what we notice is that God is stirring our memory about these other things, right? So these other stories from the Old Testament. So again, Verse 11, soon afterwards, he went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great multitude went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, Again, I think God is setting a scene by sort of hinting at and reminding us of a story from the Old Testament, okay? And so th- there's there's a significance to the situation that this woman found herself in because what we learn about her is that she is, one, a widow, and that, two, she is a widow who has an only son, okay? And, and we've probably talked about that a couple of times uh, over over the years with different stories, right? The, the seriousness, the critical nature of a woman in that situation, okay? Because if you were a woman who was, was well along in years, your husband had passed away, and you only had one son, your whole livelihood, your whole hope and future to be cared for and provided for, not be destitute, not be on the street, was in that son, right? That, that one son, okay? You remember stories like the story of Naomi and Ruth, right? The reason why Naomi's situation is so critical is because not only does her husband die, but then her two sons end up dying too. And that means she has nobody to take care of her, right? That she has nobody to provide for her. And again, it's weird because we would look at it and go, yeah, well, just go out and get a job, Naomi. It'll be fine, right? You couldn't do that in that age, right? Women only had a small amount of of places that they could end up in, in the culture, right? And so if you didn't, have someone to provide for you, then you ended up uh, in, in destitution. It, it could even force you into prostitution and things like that, right? So the serious, uh, the, the situation is very critical for this woman, right? Um, the death of her son uh, is is something that, um, as far as she understands, is going to bring her a lot of difficulty into her life, right? Um, again, it's something we should remember, the, the fact that God has particular care. We say this over and over again, right? God has particular care for certain people. Not because some people are more important than other people or something like that, but because God is, is, notices the difficulty of their situation. And so we've, we've talked about before about how God cares about the sojourner and how God cares about the orphan. But man, God cares about the widow in a particular way, right? He notices this woman who is a widow because he notices the particular plight of widows. Sometimes we'll talk about the idea that um, uh, women, couples that are dealing with infertility, that are they're dealing with what the Bible would call barrenness, about how the, the idea that um, God, you're in good company. That's a, that's a weird way to say it, right? But you're in good company when you're dealing with those issues, right? Because we look to the scriptures and we see all these different people who God has used mightily throughout the history of the Bible who also dealt with the issue of barrenness and infertility, right? Widowhood is the same way. 
Okay. And so you might um, have somebody in your life, maybe it's your own mother's, um, who are at a point in their life where they are widowed or something like that. And it's an encouragement to those, to those women to say, God has a particular care over you, right? He is watching you and caring for you in a way that I don't think it's wrong to say that he doesn't watch over everybody else, right? He, he has a particular focus on you. Okay. And that's a really cool thing, I think. Um, but again, it's not just the general situation that we notice here. It's not just a general situation of widowhood and, and having a, having no surviving male children. But the details specifically point us to that story in the Old Testament. That specifically point us to the story of Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Okay. And so this is in first Kings chapter 17 and, and the, and the, the correlations are, are pretty obvious, right? This woman is a widow in both stories. Okay. Her husband has died. Also, she only has one son in both stories. In both stories, that only son has also died. In fact, again, it seems to be that, that Luke has this specific story in mind as he writes the words of this account because he even uses the same phrase. And you'll notice that phrase um, in, in Luke where it says, and Jesus gave him to his mother, right? Gave, returned him, delivered him in different translations to his mother. And you sort of say, that's kind of an odd way of saying that, right? He raised him from the dead and he delivered him to his mother. And you go, I wonder where that kind of phrase came from. Well, guess what? It's the exact same phrase in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 17, right? It's the, it's the, it's the same wording, okay? Again, pointing us to the idea that, that Luke is saying, you remember a story, a story like this where, where Elijah did something similar to, to what Jesus is doing now? Why is that? Uh, why is he wanting to turn our uh, attention back to that? Okay, well, let's, let's look at why Jesus did it. Why does Jesus heal this woman? Verse 13, when, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and, and touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. All right. So, um, again, kind of notice that, that it seems like Jesus just stumbles upon this situation, right? Like that these aren't people who are coming to Jesus for help. Jesus just happens to be coming into the t- town at the same time that these people are, are carrying, um, uh, the dead young man on, on this, this like, uh, like stretcher kind of deal, right? And so it's not a coffin. Sometimes in art, you'll see, see this picture of, of a coffin, right? It's not that kind of, it looks more like a lot of the way, uh, uh, like you see Islamic funerals sometimes, right? There's an open, the, the body can be seen as, as it is, is being let in, okay? Um, and Jesus just happens upon it, right? And he is, he is struck in this moment by the scene and then decides to act, okay? And so probably something that we notice is that this story kind of reaffirms the themes that we've been talking about all through the Gospel of Luke. Okay, the same two things that we see over and over again that that Luke tends to be emphasizing over and over again so far. And those are the themes of Christ's compassion and Christ's authority. Okay, if you had to zoom in and say, what has Luke been doing in chapters one through seven? The answer is 
he has been establishing Jesus' compassion, and he's been establishing Jesus' authority. And this text does the exact same thing, okay? We just saw one of those themes last week, right, with the, with the centurion. Um, we see the centurion recognizing Jesus' authority and saying, man, I don't, I, you don't even need to come to my house, Jesus, because I understand the way authority works. All you have to do is speak, and I know that that thing will get done. And so those two ideas, compassion and authority, stop and consider for a second, because this is what, this is what kept on popping into my head all, all week. Uh, and I'll share a little bit at the end of the message about, about some things that popped up, um, that did that. Compassion and authority are the two sides of Jesus that our entire world needs to hear. Okay. That they are the two things that I think are at war in our culture. That they are the two things that people, it seems like everybody who thinks they know anything about Jesus tends to misunderstand one of those. Right. They, they, they major on one side and, and ignore the other side. Each side gets forgotten by a lot of people who come to Jesus. Okay. And so think about the first one. We have a world that desperately needs to understand the compassion of Jesus, right? A world that needs to know that Jesus knows you, that he cares for you to your core, right? He knows you better than you know yourself, and yet he still loves you. And like, again, not in a way that somebody loves somebody when everything is going good and when, when your glory and your splendor are on display, but the way a, a mother loves their kid who is throwing up all night, okay? Um, the way, the way a mother has compassion, they see the hurt, they see the brokenness, they see the suffering, they see the fumbling, um, around. Christ does that, right? Christ looks to the world and he sees these failed attempts at independence. And he sees our, the disastrous consequences of, of the goofy and sinful decisions that we make in our life. He sees our weakness. He sees our insufficiency. And yet he has compassion on us, right? He wants to enter into those situations and bring light and life and relief and kindness. That's what God wants for you, right? Again, we, there, there are so many people who see Jesus wrongly. Because they think Jesus is, has come to judge, that he is, he is this, uh, some kind of uh, stern taskmaster who is, who is just capriciously sending people to hell. And the reality is, is that's not the picture that we see of Jesus at all in the Bible, but certainly in the Gospel of Luke. We see, a, we see a Jesus who is, whose heart is struck by the need and hurt of people around him. And so again, if you only see God as this distant lawgiver, right? I don't know if you guys have ever read the book or seen the movie, The Cider House Rules, right? If you see a Cider House Rules kind of God, then you don't know the true God. Because what does it say of Jesus? It says he saw her and he had compassion on her. Okay, and so that's that's one side, but there's the other side gets forgotten just as easily by maybe the opposite side of, of, of the world. The other half is that forgotten authority of Jesus and what that authority means, right? Man, Jesus doesn't give suggestions. Jesus doesn't just kind of like go, ah, hope for the best. I'm going to say some things and see what happens. I hope these things play out well uh, in the world. 
Jesus doesn't write on Facebook. You know, like when people are, are usually about to tell you something, uh, jerky, um, and then they write after it, IMHO, right? In my humble opinion, right? Jesus never writes IMHO after anything, right? Jesus doesn't say, well, uh, you can take this for what it's worth. In my humble opinion, uh, Jesus doesn't talk that way, right? Jesus has authority. Jesus speaks and things happen. Jesus speaks and reality alters around his words. Jesus commands and the primordial forces of nature and existence bend to his will and bow at his feet, even death. Death bows before Jesus. And we're gonna, we're gonna pick this up in a couple of weeks, but, but just to say right now, Jesus shows us that the things that we fear most and the things that we have the least control of in our lives are insignificant next to his authority. Right? Next to Jesus' power and authority, they have no meaning. And so as certain as death and taxes, right? Not to Jesus, because death isn't certain for Jesus. That's not a phrase that Jesus would use. Jesus is Lord and King, and his word has authority, and that authority is ultimate. And again, I think that's part of the reason why Luke points us towards that story of, of the widow of Zarephath. Okay, because here's what it says. If you want to real quick and you, you can turn to first Kings chapter 17, if you want to, um, or you can just kind of listen along and let me read it. But but there's something that takes place at the end of that passage in first Kings 17, 23. It says, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber in the house and delivered him to his mother. There's that line. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And then this is the line. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are the man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Okay, that's what she says. When she sees her son raised from the dead, she says, now I know, because she's already had a relationship. You'd have to go back and read the story, right? She's already had an encounter with, with Elijah and, you know, she kind of knows that he's a prophet and, and there, there, there's been some interaction with him already. But when she raises her, his son from the dead, she says, now I know that you are the man of God and the words that are in your mouth are truth. Okay. And that's what's going on in this passage, too. We are setting up, confirming, affirming Jesus' authority and Jesus' compassion. And so it, it serves the same function here because what happens when Jesus raises this young man from the dead? A similar response, right? What do the people say here? A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Now they know that Jesus is from God, right? They, they, they can, it is confirmed in their lives. This is the thing that seemed to be obvious to the centurion just last week, right? He didn't need the confirmation of somebody being brought back from the dead because again, like we said, because he understood how authority worked. Okay. And he understood that anybody who was, who was from God and worked in God's power could, could do whatever he wanted to. But now this is confirmed and affirmed among the people, 
And so that's part of the reason why Luke includes this story is to continue to build on those two themes, okay? But I think the case is, is that he doesn't just do it to show us Jesus' authority and compassion. He also includes it. He also tells us of this story because he wants us to see who Jesus really is, to continue to show us Jesus' secret identity, right? The identity that has not come to full fruition in the world yet, right? We know it because we're sort of reading the, the story, uh, and we've seen the, the inner workings of all these things that are going on from the, the angels that came and foretold of Jesus' birth and all these different little scenes, but the world of Jesus' time doesn't know this yet. But Luke gives us another little clue in verse 16. So it says, fear, when Jesus raised this man from the dead, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Again, it's, it's, if you think about it, when you look at the passage, it is, it is stoked full of, of irony and almost truths, right? Um, like you, you're almost there, people, but, but you, but you don't quite understand what you're saying yet. So they start by saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. Okay? That's not untrue. That's, that's accurate. Again, there has not been a prophet who raised somebody from the dead for 800 years. And there's been no prophet of any kind for the last 400 years since the prophet Malachi. No prophet had done anything like this since the time of Elijah. And again, if you think about it, that makes Jesus, if we just took that, that makes Jesus one of the two or three most important prophets in the Bible, right? Two or three most important people, two or three most important people connected to God in terms of his power. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking if, if you were an Israelite and just kind of looking at this thing, you'd say, all right, Moses and Elijah and now this Jesus guy right? Um, that's the level that he is on, and they recognize that. That's exciting, right? That would be exciting for a people who had looked and said, it seems like God's been absent for like 400 years, and now all of a sudden in our midst, a prophet has arisen who is of the caliber of Elijah and Moses. That would be really cool. So they say rightly, Jesus is a great prophet, but obviously we know there's so much more to Jesus, that Jesus is so much more than a great prophet. And that's what makes the next thing that they say also kind of ironic, is that they say God has visited his people. Okay? That's just a phrase that means, it's a common phrase. You find it all throughout the Old Testament, right? It doesn't mean what it seems like it means, but that's the irony of it. Okay? All it means is, hey, God has done acted in some way on behalf of his people. God's blessed them. He's, 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 he's met them where they're at, something like that. And so anytime God did something good or kind to his people, the people would say, God has visited his people. Okay? But obviously, man, there's something more to it, isn't there? Right? Because literally, God has visited his people on this day, not just in the way they mean, but the fact that the man who is standing before them is so much more than a great prophet. But in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is in fact God himself, and he's standing in your midst. And so the reality is, has God visited his people? You bet he has. He is standing right in front of them. 
The people don't realize that much of it, but it's sort of funny because they've affirmed the Trinity without even understanding it, right? They have, out of the mouth of babes, you could say, right? Out of people who don't even understand the the full extent of what they are saying, they're speaking the truth, the central truth almost, of the entire universe, that God is a triune God, that, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so all these things together, I think, bring us to, to, to what Luke is doing in the passage, right? He is not only showing us the, the character of Jesus, you could say, the compassion and the authority, but he is also revealing to us another little clue, ironically, about the nature of Jesus, who he is in his being. So we'll close with this. And there was a couple of things that happened this week. Um, just a couple of, uh, of stories that kind of popped into my head. One is, is I was, I was talking to a person and, and they informed me of a situation that had happened of, of a pastor who had, um, fallen into sin. And then as far as we can tell, committed suicide after that was discovered and, and he, um, uh, was removed from his position at his church. Um, and, and just the, 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 the difficulty of that, right? To be his family. Um, he had a wife and three kids. Um, to be at the church, um, that is dealing with the death of their pastor. And at first thinking, oh, you know, it's just, it, there's a tragedy there that it's hard to deal with. But then to learn that the tragedy was, was a function of these other things that were going on. Uh, just the reality of that brokenness and stuff struck me this week. But there was another thing that I was reading, and it's it's a it's it's a book that I've been reading for a little bit, and it made this comment. I'll just kind of jump to the to the point. Is in thinking about this secular moment that we kind of live in, right? Uh, and all the, the 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 stuff that's going on. Um, I've shared with you a number of times, you hear me make this comment all the time, about how there are two basic tenets of modern atheism. And those are, there is no God, and I hate him. Right? And I've said that phrase lots of times because I think in many ways it is, it is, uh, there's, there's some revelation there, right? Um, we say that recognizing the fact that it doesn't seem that people don't just believe in God in our culture, right? It's that they are angry at him, which doesn't make any sense for people to be angry at a God that they don't believe exists, but it belies their, their real point, right? It shows that probably they do think he exists, okay? Um, and they're mad, probably because some of the things we talked about, right? Because they do not see the compassion of Jesus, because they do not understand the true nature of God working in their life. But I'll be honest, is as I thought about that phrase, and you'll see why it popped into my head in a second, is I started to think to myself, but you know what? When I share that, it's oftentimes not so much about the truth that it reveals, but there's a little bit of a gloat behind it. You understand what I mean? Like for me, there's a little bit of me sort of going, look at the, the, the stupidness of this position. Okay. The inconsistency of this position. Okay. Uh, and so, so when I say it, there's almost a little bit of a gotcha in it. Okay. Anyway, uh, which convicted me. Um, but it's because it convicted me that right here is that I was reading this book and this 
author was quoting another secular atheist author. And the secular atheist author said this, I believe there is no God and I miss him. And that just like struck me, right? Because instead of looking at this person and saying, eh, you're mad. That's what the problem is. You're mad. You're rebellious. You, you're, you're like the son um, who's just kicking against the goads and, and, and just being a jerk. That's your problem. Instead, there was this picture of this person who said, I, I don't believe there is a God. But man, I wish there was. All the things that I read about God and the things that I see about Jesus, I wish I could believe in those things. And maybe this person even did at some point, right? Somebody who has fallen away from the faith. And they said, I don't believe there is a God, but I miss him. And that sort of shifted my whole thought this week as I was looking at this passage. Um, because it goes back to those same two ideas that are so critical for us to extend, to share with a lost and dying world, right? This Jesus who has compassion on us. That a Jesus who is, he's, he's not our enemy, okay? He is not uh, a killjoy. He is not um, the judge waiting to bring down the hammer, right? He is here to seek and to save the lost. And yet at the same time, the authority of Jesus demands our complete surrender. It demands that we turn to Jesus and give our entire lives to him, to to surrender everything to say, Jesus, whatever you say, man, I'm wrong and you're right. And, it, and it's, I don't know, it just struck me because it made me stop for a second and say, you know what, man, we need less being on the defensive, right? And I know we talk about this all the time, right? We just need to be a little less on the defensive um, and and be a little more on the Offensive is not the right word, um, but we don't always need to be waiting to swing back, right? We need to be saying there's somebody in front of me who is hurting uh, and dying and lost and without hope. And I thought about the song, and if I if I if it had hit me earlier, we would have had I would have had Cheeto singing at the end of the service, right? But the song that says, um, "Pardon for sin." and peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine and 10,000 beside, right? That's what I have, that I can go through my life every day and sit there and count the fact that I am pardoned of sin, that I, that I live at peace with Christ, um, that Jesus is with me and I can feel his presence and I, and he guides me and encourages me and convicts me and corrects me, shows me which way to go, that he gives me strength as we deal with difficult things in our lives, right? That I have a hope in a future, man. As I've talked with people about the coronavirus stuff, right? And again, not to pick a side or, or, or whatever, but I say, man, how different is it to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the midst of something like this and to not be, right? To be scared to death of the consequences of, of COVID, right? Or to be in a position where we say, you know what, I know where I'm going at the end of the day. And that's not to be cavalier about it. It's not to take it lightly. We should always be cautious and, and prepared and all those things like that. But just to think about that fact to say, how does a person who thinks that when you die, that's it, deal with all this stuff? As opposed to someone who goes, God is in control of all things. I can trust him. And even if he should slay me, I'll still trust him. 
What's the, how, how's that different? Blessings all mine and 10,000 besides, right? That's the hope that I have. And yet there are so many people who walk by us every single day who have none of that, who look out into an empty universe and say, I don't believe there is a God, but I miss him. Like I wish there was one. We have the opportunity to share that. We have an opportunity to share the hope and, and, and truth of Jesus Christ in people's lives. Amen. Let's go to Lord in prayer and, and, and maybe something you can pray about as we close today is, is you can pray about that very opportunity, right? You know these people. I know you know these people, right? You know people who are both belligerent, um, to Jesus Christ and you know people who are just, um, hurting and, and lost and, and trying to hold on and trying to find some sort of peace and meaning and, and hope in this world. Um, Pray for those people. Take opportunities to engage with those people um, and share the love of Jesus Christ with them. Share the truth of Jesus Christ with them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, in all things, we ask that you would help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. God, that you would help us to, to keep his compassion and his authority and his truth out in front of us at all times. Father, that you would help us to continue to remember his person. God, that he is prophet, priest, and king, but not just those. That he is Messiah, that he is son of God. Uh, that he is God. God, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus wherever he goes, whatever he does. Let us follow him. Uh, let him be our example. God, let him be our salvation. Father, we pray for those lost in our lives. We pray for those people who are hurting and, and, and walking each day, uh, just living out their lives um, with no hope of what's going to come after this, of only fear about the way life uh, will, will play out. Father, we pray that we would be voices of hope in those people's lives, that, that we would not come into their lives. Um, God, that, that, that it's not that we would bring something that, that fixes them, um, but that we would tell them of you, um, that they would know your son, Jesus Christ, and how they can be saved and brought into relationship with him. Father, we, we pray for, for these issues, God. We pray for the things that we see in this text, God. We pray for um, all the things going on in our community right now. Um, we pray for our, our move back to Vienna, um, God, as we try to figure that out and, and are responsible and, and trying to be uh, prepared and, and diligent and cautious um, as much as, as we reasonably should be. Um, God, we ask for your blessing in those things. We ask that you would make that a smooth process. God, we continue to ask that you would keep us healthy, um, that, that despite this, this illness that, that's going around on, around us, um, that you would spare us from those things. God, as we've read, you have authority over this stuff. Um, you can speak and, and, and we will be safe. And so we ask that you would do that. 
Um, God, we continue to ask for peace and justice in our country as we enter into these tumultuous months leading up to the election, God. Uh, I can only imagine that things will get more difficult before they get better. And so we pray for your um, peace. We pray for people, um, God, to speak their minds and yet not to um, to hurt and destroy and kill. Um, God, we pray that as our as our, our government makes these decisions and as, as leadership either transitions or continues, um, God, that you would just come into this situation. It is, it is such a mess, um, that it is hard for us to even know, um, what to ask for. And yet we know that you are good. You are righteous. You are wise and you are trustworthy. And so we ask that you would do good for your people, not because we deserve it, because you, God, are good and righteous and a God who gives good gifts to his children. And Father, uh, we just continue to pray for our congregation, that we would be people who take um, the message of the gospel to the lost and that uh, we would love each other and care for each other uh, in these difficult times. God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. Yeah. Uh-huh.
Amen. Good to see you guys tonight. Thanks for being here. Um, hope you have a good week, and we'll see you next week. Um, continue to be in prayer, um, especially with with issues surrounding uh, COVID. Um, it's probably many many of you are aware we've got several people in our church who have either been exposed or or um, have family members who have been exposed. Some who are actually been tested positive and stuff. And so let's just keep on praying um, that God would would keep us safe, um, that He would spare us the illness, that He would spare us serious consequences. Um, from the illness, um, and that he would watch over us. Um, Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you, and give you peace. We'll see you next week.